0: Okay, so we're in James chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to just preach another one verse out of James chapter 4 this morning, and trust that it really encourages you. We're going to read from this verse 1 and 2 out of James chapter 4. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, not literally, but in terms of. Yeah, James is talking about people speaking badly and murdering each other with their words. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not, are, you do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm aware that this is a challenging book to preach and uh, we've had three chapters of it and now chapter four gets even more challenging. (laughs) But this really is a pastoral epistle. It's James writing. You know, the other pastoral epistles are are Timothy and Titus where instructions are given in terms of how we should relate to each other in the church. And here, this is also a pastoral epistle that James is is instructing us and saying, this is how the Christian life is to be lived. If you're a Christian, this is how you should live. And so, last week I had a look at the first verse which says what causes fights and quarrels amongst you. And remember, basically James said we fight with each other in the church and he is talking to people in the church. We fight and quarrel in the church because of our own desire, our own passion, our own selfishness, our own wanting to get our own way. That's why people fight and quarrel in the church. And we are ruled by this kind of inward passion that is not under control. And so there's this reality that in the church we can have an outward morality, we can follow the rules, we can do the right thing, but at, at the same time, inside of us, inside our hearts, there can be a war going on that is truly what the state is inside. Are you with me? So. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. The gospel doesn't talk about rules. It doesn't talk about following rules. It talks about your relationship, the inward thing that is happening in the, in, your, in the quietness of your heart and how you respond to God. That's what the gospel really addresses. And so we can have this outward morality and still be at war inside of us to the higher call that God has for all of us, and this is the higher call of the gospel, is simply to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the, the gospel summarized. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is the highest thing that we are called to, is to love God with all of our hearts and to love each other with all of our hearts. And so, I want to continue out of that theme this morning, just looking at the second verse, which says, you desire and you do not have. You desire and you do not have. And James actually shows here some spiritual discernment. He shows that he actually does know something about these people that he's writing to. This is a circular letter, but he is showing that he has some understanding of their situation. In the same way, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, Paul says this, I'm afraid that as the servant deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul had that same kind of discernment. He didn't know all the details of what was happening in the Corinthian church, but he knew enough to warn them, and he said, I'm concerned that your hearts are going to be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And in the same way, James is writing to this church that that these scattered people, and he's saying, this is my concern. You desire and you do not have. And so he's kind of, he's addressing what actually is the root of their problem. And the root of the problem of these people was that they were comfortable, they were outwardly moral, but inwardly they were cold, their hearts were cold to the higher law of love. And so we know, as we looked at the first two chapters, that was expressed in the congregation by them saying to the rich people, we like you, and to the poor people, we don't like you. So that's how James knew that there was something wrong. They didn't even see that as sin. That they were were discriminating in the congregation between rich and poor. And so James puts his finger right at the center of the problem and he says, he's saying what follows a backslidden cold heart, the inevitable consequence of a backslidden cold heart is that you desire things and you cannot have them. This is a This is a consequence of backsliddenness. Desiring things all the time and not having them. And so I want to call my message this morning, Restless Christians. Restless Christians. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, said this, many, many hundreds of years ago. He said this, You have made us for yourself. Speaking about God's people, You have made us for yourself for yourself, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. So I can paraphrase that. I can re-say that. um, I could put it how James would have put it. James would have said this. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts will always be desiring, unfulfilled, and restless until we find our rest in you. James would have said it like that, but essentially it's the same thing. And I have to say this, over the years of being involved in church leadership, I've seen this over and over and over again. Restless Christians, unhappy here, unhappy there, unhappy in this job, unhappy in that job. Unhappy with this spouse, wanting another one. Unhappy with their kids, unhappy, unhappy, unhappy. And so I say to you, as friends, it is quite possible as a Christian to be simultaneously saved and absolutely miserable. Always restless, always wanting something more. Never settled, never just at peace with God and yourself. And I want to say to you, God wants us to be at peace with Him, and at peace in our own hearts and with our friends and ourselves that we can enjoy our lives. So, we don't want to be saved and restless. We want to be saved and at peace. So how then do we find rest in God? And that's what I'd like to really speak about this morning. And I want to start by saying this. Remember this in all that I say this morning. Understand this, that God made us, that God bought us by the blood of Jesus... And anything that is sin in our lives, although it's covered by the blood, the the, the consequence of sin in our lives is that it makes us rebels, that we are rebels against God and His will in our lives. We are rebels, all right? And anything that is sin in our lives, God has to deal with by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can get to know Him better. All right? I've been saying this over and over. Our legal position is that we are saved. That when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin. But there's a thing that we have to work out in our lives and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us so that what is legally true becomes true of us as we live our lives. That we are becoming more patient, more kind, that our our mouths are becoming more controlled, etc., etc., etc. Do you get what I'm saying? And so we don't want to be restless, miserable Christians. We want to be at peace in our own hearts. And if we really, if we really understand the implications of the gospel and what it means to believe in Jesus, that shouldn't surprise us that, we, that, that there are Christians that are like that. I want to remind you, if you're saved this morning, I want to remind you of that wonderful, wonderful moment in your life where the Holy Spirit drew you, He wooed you, he brought conviction into your life and you knew you knew that you needed a Savior and instantly you cried out to Jesus, whether it was through preaching or someone praying with you, and you said, Lord Jesus, I need you as my Savior. I want to remind you of that moment. It's a, it's a miraculous, incredible thing that happens when you and I are born again. That moment. I want to remind you of that this morning. Okay? And at that moment, when you receive Jesus, when when He came and invaded your heart. In the, in the, 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 I'm using invaded in the best possible way. He invaded your life and He started to transform you. At that moment, He purchased you. He bought you. Do you know what that means? From that moment on, you were no longer your own. You belonged to Him. You were His purchase. You were His property. You, your life is no longer your own. That moment, He purchased you with His blood. And because Jesus so loves you, because Jesus so loves me, He is jealously determined to make you and I more and more like Jesus. (laughs) That is His mission. I want to tell you, that's the mission for your life. Regardless of what you do, whether you're a nurse or a psychiatrist or a teacher, whatever you are, God's mission for your life is that you would become more and more like His Son. That, that's what He's determined to do. And one day we will become perfectly like Him and the Scripture says, if Jesus comes back and takes us to heaven, instantly we will have a glorified body, and then we will understand all things, and we will be perfect, and we will know everything perfectly. But until that day, you and I are on a journey with the Holy Spirit. Right? And we said over and over again, Galatians, walk deliberately by the Spirit, and you will fulfill the law automatically. Yes? If we walk by the Spirit. And so, everything that is in us, that needs to be challenged, Jesus will challenge by the power of His Holy Spirit. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls you and I. Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, controls us and controls our destiny. He wants us to become more and more like Jesus. And he says, Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all, that those who might live, that's you and I, those that are the saved, no longer live for themselves, but for Him. That's why... Jesus controls you and I by the power of His Spirit. Not in a a manipulative way, but in a loving, sovereign way. He controls our lives so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we start to live for Him and we start to live for other people. This is the gospel. We no longer live for our own selfish little lives. We live for Him. And Paul repeats it in Philippians 3. He says this, Not that I've already obtained all of this, that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. That's why I press on, because I want to become more and more like Jesus. So a godly person who understands the gospel, this is the cry of their heart. Christ died for me. I understand that. He bought me. I know that. He would not own me if He didn't have a good plan for me. So I want to find out what the good plan is that Jesus has for me. Yes? And that's our mission as Christians. That's what we are learning all the time, is why we on this planet, what God has called us to do, and why we're alive. How can we use our gifts for Him and for the kingdom? And so when we start to live in obedience, and that's really what it's about, walking by the Spirit, is learning to hear the voice of God and be obedient in our lives, the benefits of obedience with God are immeasurably wonderful. I can't begin to describe to you what a difference it makes when we start to live in obedience. God transforms everything. But because we are loved by Jesus, because we are bought with His blood, because He wants us to become more and more like His Son, and because He's not, he's not ever going to wink at stuff in our lives that, he, that sh- should change, we experience, as Christians, we experience something that non-Christians do not ever experience. And it's called the teaching of the Holy Spirit. It's called God's discipline. He lovingly, sovereignly teaches us by the power of His Spirit... Hebrews tells us, Hebrews um, uh, says this, For the Lord disciplines the the ones that He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. For discipline, it is for discipline that you endure, because God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If we are left without discipline, in which we have participated, then you are an illegitimate child. You are not His son. So evidence of God's love for you is that He teaches you by His Spirit and He doesn't tolerate sin. It's evidence that you are His child. Now I know that some charismatic Christians don't like this word discipline. I want to to translate it with the word teaching. God teaches us by His Spirit. That includes some correction, discipline, or however you want to understand it. And what I want to stress to you this morning is some of the older translations of the scripture use the word bastard. They say, if you, the older translations say, if you are, if you are, reject the discipline of God in your life, it is like you are a bastard. You are a fatherless person. And I think the. Some of the translations are too polite, because when you say it as strongly as that, then people actually understand that, so actually, no, I, I am a son. I have a father. Yes, he loves me, and that's why, that's why he's changing me from the inside out. That's why he's determined that I might become like Jesus. And so I want to say some things about learning to embrace God's teaching in our lives. Because I started by saying, there's so many restless Christians. Well, I want to say this to you lovingly as a friend this morning. And it's the process of my life. The more we learn to embrace God's teaching by His Holy Spirit in our lives, the more we embrace the discipline of God in our lives through various things that I'm going to speak to you about this morning, the more peaceful our hearts become. The the less restless we are when we embrace his loving, sovereign hand in our lives. So I want to remind you of three things this morning as an introduction. One, if you are a child of God, if you are saved, if you're a Christian, you will experience God's teaching in your life. Father, power of the Holy Spirit, you will. Okay? It's a guarantee, because it's a guarantee that you're His son. Secondly, it's for your benefit. And I love this. You know, as an earthly parent, we, we, we try, moms and dads, we try to... Um, discipline our children as best we can and teach and train our children as best as I can, as best as we can. But sometimes we teach and train our children out of emotion. Sometimes we, teach, uh, we, we train our children out of anger or out of reaction or out of frustration. And that's why I think people don't like this word discipline. I want to say this to you this morning, that you might know it, that when God moves in our lives, when God teaches us by the power of His Holy Spirit, when He disciplines us, He is never frustrated with us. He is never angry with us. He is never not smiling upon us. He only works in our lives for our good, so that we might fully lived. Why do I say that? Because Psalm 103 is a promise for us in verse 10. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. In other words, all of God's anger, all of God's wrath, all of God's frustration was fully dealt with on the cross when Jesus took our sin upon Himself. And so when God now responds to us, it is never with anger, frustration, out of emotion. He is fully in control, and He only deals with us for our good. Can, I, can, can that be settled in your hearts this morning? He only, he only does that for our good. And thirdly, I've become aware over the last, the last number of years that charismatic Christians have an aversion to pain in their lives. They think if there's pain in my life, it means God is not blessing me. I want to say to you, it's got the pain that we... Is this thing just died? No. Okay. Why are we so averse to pain? Why do we think the highest goal that God has for us is that we would be pain-free? I don't know why we think like that. It's not biblical. I'm not saying we masochists. I'm not saying we invite pain. But in this life, we will have some trouble. We will. Jesus promised it. He said, you will have some trouble. And so, we've got to learn to deal with our trouble in a way that glorifies Jesus and brings honor to Him. Yes? And so, Hebrews... Tells us a wonderful thing in verse 11 of chapter 12. It says, In the moment, for the moment, discipline seems painful, not pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those that have been trained by it. How many of you want some peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life? I do. That's what I vote for. So when there's pain in my life and God is teaching me stuff, I want to be trained well by it so the pain that I go through produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I want to say to you, this is overwhelmingly good news. So how does God train us? I want to give you five things this morning. Firstly, I want to say, by His internal work in us. And what do I mean by that? Well... There's a kind of... Have you ever sat in a meeting or in a life group or something like that and the Word of God comes and it's like there's a surgeon's knife that goes into your heart and you know God is just doing something really deep in you and it's like, ah, Yes, it's me. I'm sorry, Lord. Have you ever had times like that? No, none of you. Only me. Okay, well, that's cool that's what I mean by the internal work it's like God just puts his finger on something and you know God is speaking to me yes Lord I'm guilty that's me please right now let me deal with that and that's, that's what the scripture says Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is like a living active sharper two edged sword piercing the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart that's what happens when the priest's word comes or someone shares something and it's life to you it goes in It's like you can hardly breathe, you can hardly speak, you know God's got your number. And here's the good news. If when that happens, our hearts are soft and open, and we let the Word of God change us, then God doesn't have to use other stuff to get our attention. So I want to plead with you as a brother, and someone who also, I sit under the Word by listening to other people preaching and to studying, I'm trying to sit under the Word myself. I don't point a finger at anyone. All I'm saying to you is when you hear the voice of God speak to you, don't harden your heart. Keep your heart soft and say, Jesus, please just help me not to be proud and stubborn. I want to change right now by the power of your Spirit. Please help me. It's the best way. (laughs) It is the best way. Why? Why? because there's some other things that come if we harden our hearts, if we choose to harden our hearts, then God says, I so love you, Jill. (laughs) And you're smiling, so that's why I'm of you. (laughs) I so love you, Jill. You didn't respond to my words, so now I'm going to let some things happen to try and get your attention. And so God uses external circumstances. And so, unfortunately, I mean, I I, I would hope that our first impulse would be to respond to the Word of God. But because we are proud, threatened people, our first impulse is to trust ourselves. Not trust the Word of God or the priest's words. And when the Word of God ceases to break our hearts, then God says, okay, there's some external things I'm going to have to do to bring attention. So God allows some things to happen in our lives. Perhaps things start to happen in lives that we have no control over. We might lose our job. We might lose close friendships and we wonder what's going on. Well, how did that friendship go wrong? But God is saying, I'm trying to wake you up, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to speak to you. I want to ask you again, if you know there's some things like that that have happened in your life, in that moment, don't harden your heart either. Just say, Lord Jesus, what are you saying to me? Help me to understand what you're doing. And then thirdly, if we harden our hearts even further and we don't let these external things make us think and stop and say, God, what are you doing? There can be a third thing that God does and allows, and that's that He withdraws grace from us. What do I mean by that? There are certain gifts that God gives us that are gifts of grace that enable us to live our lives different from non-Christians. And we, because of the blood of Jesus as Christians, we can know this, we can know joy, that our sins are forgiven. We can know His peace because His... Life is active, is active in us. We can know a sense of His will. We can know all of those things which are beautiful things, and that's what separates Christians from non-Christians, that actually we, we have those things as a reality because they are there by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can feel His presence. We know we're saved. We know the knowledge of His will. And sometimes we can get to a place where we are so hardened to God that we even start to doubt that our sins are forgiven. We, we don't experience His peace anymore because we are so frustrated. And this is why James says, you desire but you do not have. Here's the irony that James is pointing to. Non-Christians lust and desire after things and they get them. And Christians lust and desire after things and they don't get them. Why is that? Well... It's like there are times in our lives when our hearts are so hot that God gives us over to ourselves. He gives us over to our passion. He gives us over to our own jealousies. He gives us over to our fuzzy thinking. He gives, up, gives us over to those things to try and wake us up. And so I want to say that we get sometimes we are so controlled by our own passion that we become worldly. It's like we are not saved. And that's what James is trying to say in this portion. He said, like I said last week, even the law points out that you are not living by grace. And so this is the place that these early Christians were at. It was an inevitable consequence of their backsliddenness. They were outwardly moral. They were doing the right thing. But inwardly, they were cold. They were dead to the love of God. They were fighting with each other. They were discriminating against the poor. And James says, wake up. It's like they really were so close to the world that they wanted the world, but they couldn't have the world. Why? Because Jesus had his hand upon them. And he was saying, no, I'm determined that you're going to become like my son. And you see what I'm saying? We can be simultaneously saved and miserable. (laughs) Restless, but saved. You see, when we are in a backslidden state... It's like we get allergic to the things of God. We get allergic to His people. We get allergic to godly fellowship. We get allergic to the church gathering together. We, we, those things no longer are precious to us anymore when we're in a backslidden slate. And the saddest thing is that these early Christians, they rationalized that. They, made, they said this kind of thing. They said, well, every other Christian is like me. That's how normal Christians are. See, that when we backslidden, that's what we do. We project our own lives onto every other Christian and say, well, that's how every other Christian is. No, no, it's not how every other Christian is. It's how backslidden Christians are. And so a backslidden person puts all of what he feels onto other people. And I've seen this over and over again. People seek out people that are like them. And godly community secretly annoys us. And godly people secretly annoy us. And, and when uh, people are happy and celebrating and worship, it secretly annoys us. Why? Because we're backslidden. nothing to do with those people, it's got to do with us. And so this is what, um, it's quite a grim picture, isn't it? (laughs) But I want to say to you, that little phrase, you desire and you don't have, is incredibly encouraging. You know why it's incredibly encouraging? Because it is evidence of God's grace still to us that He doesn't let us get what we desire. Because He so loves us. I thank God for the overriding grace of God in my life. I can point you to some times when I was younger that I desperately wanted a particular relationship to work. (laughs) And I desperately wanted this to work. And I desperately wanted that for my life. And you know what? God frustrated me. He didn't let it happen. You know why He didn't let it happen? Because He knew if I got it, it would destroy me. And His overriding grace in my life was, Actually, Aunt, I so love you. I'm not letting you get together with that person because I have someone much better for you. And there she is. Yeah? Sometimes God doesn't let you get what you want, what you desire, what you think is the right thing, what you are lusting after with your heart because He knows it will destroy you, if you get it. And His overriding grace in your life says, I am so in love with you that I will not let that happen. It's an amazing thing. So even even in this little phrase, it speaks to us of the grace of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God in our lives. And why does God do that? Well, so He spares us sorrow and guilt. You know, I've known this, that guilt... In my life, it cripples you, guilt. It traumatizes you. It traumatizes your personality. You, when you're racked by guilt, you're not yourself. You, you think weird, and you behave differently, and it's, it's... Why? Because guilt traumatizes people. And to save us from guilt, God says, No, I'm put, keeping my hand on you. Secondly, it protects us from the things that beca- become addictions. How many times have you not said, Oh, I'll only do that once. Just once, God, I'll do that. Uh, only once. And how many times does it become a problem? And it's just every, every week, every day, you're doing the same thing, and it becomes an addiction. The overriding grace of God stops us so it doesn't become an addiction. Thirdly, God intervenes and spares you the sorrow and pain that the thing that you want, that you desire, will cause your family, will cause your friends, will cause, will, will, will cause your wife, your kids... I heard this week of another church leader who ran away with his personal assistant, another one. it's It's just so discouraging. You know how we get to that place? Even preachers. Because all of these things I'm talking about, we harden our hearts to the Word of God. We harden our hearts to our, our friends. We harden our hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit. We harden our hearts to the overriding grace of God in our lives. And we say, we are arrogant to, enough to say, it will never happen to me. And what happens? It happens to us. And so what happens if we continue to harden our, our hearts to the teaching of God? Well, the inevitable thing is shame. That's when we have rejected the overriding grace of God in our lives. We will experience shame. We will get caught out when we so lust after that thing or that person that God does allow us to fall. I heard um, read a letter, John Newton wrote a letter and he said this, that God sometimes does let some of His children fall just to show them that it can happen. <laughs> If you really want it, it will happen. Let us not be caught out and let us not think these things will only happen to other people and never to us, because that is the greatest folly we could make. And the most severe kind of discipline... And this actually is an encouraging message. I'm going to conclude in a very encouraging way, I hope. But the, the inevitable consequence of shame, if we, if we even harden ourselves to the shame that God is trying to bring our attention to, the most severe kind of discipline that is, we know of in the New Testament is that people are asked to leave the church community. Paul put it like this. He said, hand that person over to themselves and to the devil, that the devil might destroy their flesh, but that their spirit might be saved on that day. So what does Paul mean by that? Well, when we, when we it's, it's something of our lifestyle. When we've hardened ourselves to that point and nothing is going to impact us anymore, Paul says, put those people who refuse to repent, put them out of the church. And he's referring to this situation in Corinthians. The Corinthian church was a very lively church. It was full of spiritual gifts, but it was quite immature. And so in this church, there was a guy that was sleeping with his mother-in-law. 1 Corinthians 5. Go read it for yourself. He was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and he refused to repent. So Paul says to the church, you put that man out of the church. Put him out. So, you are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that His Spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. And so when people get to that point in their lives, they bring upon themselves a premature and often tragic end. But here is the great hope of the gospel. Because if there was anyone here like that, I would say to you this morning, you have hope. And why do I say you have hope? Because the gospel of Jesus says that you can come back. The invitation of the gospel is always welcome home. The invitation of the gospel is always if you are faithful to confess your sin and repent, God is faithful to forgive. And so if you know the whole picture, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes again to the Corinthian church and he says that man has repented. He has changed. Now you welcome him back into the church community with open arms and you say welcome home. The gospel is amazing. And so I want to say, the gospel always is God drawing us, wooing us, calling us to come back with all of our hearts to Him. And so I want to conclude with this, very simple this morning. And again, I'm not asking us to be introverted, and I'm not asking us to look for things that are not there. I'm just simply saying, if you know there's some things in your life, any area of your life, that you need to say, God, I'm sorry for that thing, why don't you just right now in your heart repent fully. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And then help God, let God help you pick up the pieces. Maybe you've been in a state of wanting some things, and desiring some things, and, and knowing that you're not getting them. <laughs> Well, I want to encourage you, don't stay in that state forever because only one of two things will happen. Either you will fall into that sin or you'll fully repent and come back to a knowledge of his presence, his grace, his goodness, his kindness knowing that your sins are forgiven. And if, like me, you know that God's mercy in your life has saved you from some disasters <laughs> Why don't you just say thank you this morning? Jesus, thank you that your grace was on my life. Thank you that your overriding hand of protection was on me. Thank you that you never gave me that thing. I know now it would not have been good for me. I'm so thankful, Lord. Thank you. God spares us much pain in his great mercy. He really does. And so if that's you this morning, why don't you give yourself a fresh tim and ask him to use you as you love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. Can I ask you, don't leave this morning with a restless heart. Let God deal with some things. Let the Holy Spirit renew you. Let the Holy Spirit refresh you. Let the Holy Spirit liberate you this morning. Amen.